Murder Man. Uh, this is Harold Schechter. You're listening to Murder Metal Mayhem. Spreading faster than a case of the clap in a trailer court. Able to shatter eardrums within a 666 mile radius. A podcast more brutal than all the rest. It's Murder Metal We have the privilege to be speaking with Dr. Harold Schechter today on Murder Metal Mayhem. Harold is a true crime author who has written many books about true crime and serial killers. He's also a professor emeritus at Queens College in New York. He's been on Murder Metal Mayhem before and is gracious enough to come back and talk to us again. I have one of my co-hosts here with me, Joey Cashman. How are things with you, Harold, in New York? Good. Everything's, uh, you know, seem to be getting back to normal. Um, Not sure exactly what's happening now. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, but uh, can't complain. Been busy. Well, you look good. Uh, You just got back from vacation? Uh, No, uh, I'm good because i retired a couple of years ago ah that's right well retirement's been treating you good it looks like uh yes especially now that i got my playstation 5 (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome well harold we really enjoyed your latest book maniac about the bath school disaster uh you have a penchant for writing about obscure historical morsels like that what made you decide to write it um, I actually came uh, some years ago. I did a book called Psycho USA, Think American Killers You Never Heard Of. Um, and it was while researching that book, I came across uh, the uh, story of Andrew Kehoe and the Bath School disaster. Uh, very fascinated by it, um, given the enormity of the crime, uh, the fact that it was, I mean, I'd never heard of it. And, you know, many, many people, even in Michigan, haven't heard of it. So I began to look a little more deeply into that. In Psycho USA, I wrote about each entry is about 20 pages or so or 10 pages. Um, I decided it was worth seeing if it could be expanded into a book. And the result was Maniac. Awesome. Well, uh, Harold, this is Joey of Murder Metal Mayhem. Um, Andrew Kehoe definitely meets the definition of a maniac. But why do you think so few people know about this horrible tragedy? And do you think Lindbergh's famous flight happening at the same time might have been part of the reason? Well, that was uh, a big factor. I mean, I, I weave uh, the story of uh, Lindbergh's uh, really world-changing flight into the narrative. Um, as it happened, uh, the Bath School disaster, which your listeners probably don't know, as I didn't know when I first discovered it, um, was the worst school massacre in U.S. history. Uh, took place in this little farming community called Bath, Michigan. Uh, one of the uh, really respected members of the community, he was on the school board, in fact, a guy named Andrew Kehoe, uh, descended into paranoia and madness and uh, uh, rigged the school's basement with all this uh, World War I surplus dynamite. Uh, and set the timer to go off on the last day of school in May 1927. Fortunately, a lot of it didn't go off, or he would have basically killed every kid in the community. Um, But he still destroyed one wing of the school, 
um, killed about three dozen kids, some teachers. So, I mean, it was an enormous, it was both the worst school massacre in U.S. history and the worst act of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh, and yet completely forgotten. And yes, one of the reasons that it's so quickly faded um, from public memory is that it happened like two days before Lindbergh's flight. You know, the day after the Bath School massacre happened, it was front page on the New York Times was the main story. A couple of days later, the Times are like 16 pages on Lindbergh's flight, and, and there was nothing on the Bath School disaster. So that's one main reason. I also think, uh, and this is part of the argument I make in the book, that there are certain kinds of crimes that uh, really resonate at particular times in our history. So that, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, it was serial murder. That's a little bit faded now. Now we're fascinated by mass, you know, we're obsessed with mass murders. But back in 1927, you know, it was such a bizarre, freakish kind of crime. Uh, and, and, you know, it happened so far away from the media centers of the country that I just think, you know, it didn't, again, strike a chord with people. So, um, so I think both those reasons account for it. Yeah, definitely. Now, it's scary to think if all that pyrotol had gone off, and I learned a lot about uh, pyrotol in your book, that so many more people would have been killed. And the way you describe the chaos at the scene with Kehoe blowing himself up and the superintendent is just unreal, I can't imagine what would have, that would have been like to see for those people from such a small town. Yeah, well, the thing with the pyrotol, again, you know, once World War I was over, uh, the government was left with all the surplus TNT. And so they made it into what they called pyrotol, which was kind of a low-grade dynamite that they sold to farmers to help clear their land of stumps and boulders and so on. And every farmer was entitled to buy, I think, a 1,000 pounds of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... Kehoe acquired, I think, 500 pounds of it. He got some additional dynamite. Uh, again, spent weeks at night because he had access. He had access to the school, partly because he was a school board member, partly because he was uh, very handy and he was doing some handyman jobs around the school, you know, getting into the school at night and rigging this place. But, yeah, I mean, uh, his intention was, uh, again, he, he had become so Paris, uh, paranoid uh, and, uh, you know, what criminologists now call an injustice collector. He blamed the community on all these failures, his economic failures, and, you know, being uh, uh, rejected when he ran for town office and so on and so forth. He decided to take this terrible revenge on the community and um, destroy the school. You know, he was always an opponent of building the school. I should say that um, back then these, uh, in the Midwest and in the South throughout the country, there was this movement to do away with the old one room schoolhouses and build these large, what they call consolidated schools, which went from kindergarten through high school, uh, you know, to give rural kids the kind of education that their urban counterparts were getting. And so, uh, you know, the people of, uh, 
of, uh, of Bath voted to construct the school, Kehoe was an opponent because it meant they were going to raise his taxes, and he didn't have kids. So he was going to destroy the school, but he was also, again, he, he said about, you know, if, if his uh, diabolical plot had succeeded, uh, yeah, he would have killed every kid in the community. As it was, he, he inflicted, obviously, this terrible trauma on the community because it was a small town. You know, that everybody, you know, if they didn't lose kids themselves, you know, a neighbor or a friend lost kids. And, I mean, it was a terrible crime. I, uh, I say in the book, throughout the 20th century, going back to the shooting of Stanford White in the turn of the century, there were these crimes of the century, you know, all the way up to, let's say, OJ. Uh, but by the time I finished my book, I had decided that the Bath school disaster really was the crime of the century. Um, you know, this cold blooded murder, uh, of all these children. So. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you think that Timothy McVeigh used Kehoe as an inspiration for his 1995 bombing in Oklahoma city? I doubt it. I mean, I think probably Timothy McVeigh, like the rest of us probably had no idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, terror bombings and car bombings and, you know, that kind of terrorism had become uh, not necessarily in our own country, but, you know, but terrorist acts like that um, had become much more prevalent around the world. So, yeah, I doubt that McVeigh, um, you know, was inspired by Kehoe. Okay. Um, it is amazing that only days after Columbine, the L.A. Times referenced the Bath School disaster as the worst in terms of victims. You mentioned in your book several references to Bath that were made or laid in school disasters. Yeah, well, sadly, um, you know, uh, after Columbine and, you know, there's this uh, epidemic of school shootings. And, uh, you know, after each one, uh, newspapers, I, I think— Newsweek magazine did it, you know, they would run these lists of the worst school massacres in our history. And, you know, Bath would always top the list. Um, you know, of course, Bath wasn't a school shooting, uh, it was a bombing, but, you know, again, it was a school massacre. So, yeah. Um, now, in your book, Maniac, you talk about the 1937 New London, Texas school where hundreds were killed in the gas explosion. Do you believe that yeah. was an accident? And why do you think that they don't know how many victims there were? Um, I do think that was an accident. I don't think that was a deliberate act of terrorism the way uh, Kehoe's act was. Um, yeah, I can't remember now. You'll have to forgive me. It's been a while since I wrote the book exactly why the number of uh, well you actually reference the incident in the book but you don't give a specific number of victims yeah. so i was wondering if possibly you know something came to light afterward it was just that in doing my research uh you know when i do research i, I do go back look at all these old newspapers and so on and so forth you know there seemed to be a lot of uncertainty um you know there'd be one number uh, cited one day and a slightly different number the next. I, I don't know if it's partly because, you know, just some of the remains, you know, were unidentifiable or what, but, you know, there seems to be a little ambiguity about that. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Now, do you think, or what is it about, you know, most people think guns when they think of school violence, and what was it about Columbine specifically that you think sticks out in people's minds like it does? I think there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, you know, it, it was uh, the act, um, you know, that uh, seemed to set off and in a couple of cases inspire uh, the subsequent school shooting. But I also think, you know, I, I've given a lot of thought to why it is that certain crimes uh, kind of grip the public imagination, whereas other crimes, sometimes equally or even more heinous, uh, you know, basically disappear from the newspapers after a couple of days. And, and part of it has to do with the, uh, trying to figure out exactly how to say this, you know, uh, as you know, and as your podcast is an example of, you know, people are very fascinated by true crime. And when they listen to true crime stuff, they're really, you know, not so much or entirely interested in the gory graphic violence is in the kind of story that's involved, you know? Um, and Columbine, you know, given the characters, uh, you know, given the two kids who are involved, given their relationship, you know, uh, there's something about that whole story, uh, that is very, very darkly compelling. Um, you know, just the way they planned it, uh, you know, it's sort of made for TV, you know, ready material. So uh, I do think that's one of, and, and uh, I forget the guy's name. So it was Dylan. Remind me of the, it was uh Klebold and Harris. Yeah. So I guess it was Klebold, you know, who was kind of a classic, you know, the, the, they, the two of them made a kind of pair that criminologists call a folia de, and there have been a number of those, like Leopold and Loeb or uh, the Hillside Stranglers. You know, you get these two people who eventually probably would never commit these things, but you put them together, they form this very toxic relationship. And usually it's sort of one psychopathic personality and one who's sort of uh, submissive and goes along with it for whatever reasons. And you kind of get that with Klebold and Harris. Um, and... Uh, so again, I, I mean, I think it's partly the enormity of the crime, but also the characters, you know, as I say, the whole narrative quality of how they planned it, carried it out, um, and so on and so forth. Right. I mean, so how much of a factor do you think that media coverage plays in these acts of violence in our schools? Well, you know, there are definitely, there's no doubt that some serial killers, for example, and some mass murderers, you know, feed off the publicity you, you know a lot of these people are people who feel or have been raised to feel you know like non-entities and their lives have come to nothing and they're gonna go out in this kind of blaze of glory and make the front pages and i think klebold and harris felt that way uh, and to some extent it came to pass um so yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, there have been serial killers who, you know, their aspiration was to outdo Jack the Ripper. But on the other hand, you know, it's not like the media is not going to cover this stuff. So, Right, exactly. Now, uh, you referenced thrill killers Leopold and Loeb uh, in the introduction to Maniac. 
and they were kids of affluence that had the world seemingly in their hands, what was it about their crimes that captivated the nation in the 1920s? Well, again, I, I think that there were certain crimes and criminals who uh, come to uh, personify, you know, some of the widespread fears and anxieties of the cultural moment. You know, the way Manson was like every parent's worst nightmare about sex and drugs crazed hippies and so on. You know, you the 60s without thinking about Manson, you know. Um, same thing with the 20s. I mean, in a way, you don't think about the 20s without thinking about Leopold and Loeb. And, and, and they were, you know, there was a lot of uh, concern at that time among, you know, mainstream middle class Americans about, you know, what they call the flaming youth, all these jet age kids going crazy and stuff. And, you know, Leopold and Loeb seemed to be, again, the incarnations of that kind of nightmare. And again, they were fascinating characters, you know, brilliant, wealthy, you know, committing this completely gratuitous crime because, you know, they wanted to prove they were Nietzsche and Superman and so on and so forth. So, again, you know, it's a story that has been told over and over again because it has so many of those amazing elements, you know, and then being defended by Clarence Darrow, you know, the greatest defense of his time and stuff, stuff. And then again, there's also the sexual element, uh, you know, in terms of their relationship. So, you know, it has all these ingredients. You know, it's like, you know, any best-selling book or movie has to have ingredients to capture the audience. So, Yeah, I was amazed to see that Leopold had an IQ of over 200. I don't think I've ever known a person that's ever had an IQ that high. That's amazing in the University of Chicago when he was 16 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty damn smart. Um, So we have an episode coming up on Jane Toppin. How did she earn the nickname Jolly Jane in the press? (laughs) 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 Well, I'm not sure the press at the time did call her Jolly Jane. I think that that sort of uh, was attached to her later on when people are writing about the case. Um, yeah, I, I don't recall coming across that, uh, you know, temporaneously. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, she's looking pretty grim in those pictures. Not looking very jolly, kind of like Belle Gunness, who I love that book you wrote about her. Yeah, yeah, she never looks too jolly in those. Actually, jolly Jane. Uh, let me take a step back. I think uh, again, I, I don't know that she was called that uh, at the time, but she apparently did have. Uh, you know, this kind of a bullion personality. Um, you know, she was a private nurse who, uh, you know, won the trust and affection of different people. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do think she cultivated, you know, a certain kind of uh, uh, jolly persona. So. Yeah. Now, what is it about serial killers like Jane Toppin, who was a nurse? Um, you know, you talk about her childhood and some, you know, dark stuff in her past. Was that what made her um, kill? Her mother died young. Her father was this alcoholic who couldn't take care of her, turned her over to this orphanage. She was uh, taken into the home, never formally adopted. But she was, ta- you know, they would farm out these orphans. Well, she wasn't technically an orphan, but in effect she was. You know, they would farm them out to do domestic work. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I 
have come to believe, you know, is that a lot of serial killers have suffered a lot of extreme humiliation in their, in their childhoods. Um, and excuse me, you know, some of their crimes are a way of both taking revenge on the world and also proving somehow they have this power, you know, because they're made to feel so powerless and like nothing in their childhoods. So, uh, you know, I think Jane was certainly subjected to various forms of humiliation. Um, you know, partly it was her Irish background at a time around Boston when the Irish were really looked down upon. You know, partly it was her menial position. Uh, again, she'd had a difficult childhood. You know, none of it totally explains her homicidal acts. But, but you know, I do think there are elements of that. Yeah, for sure. Now, we, we recently covered the Clutter family mur- murders on our podcast. How influential was In Cold Blood by Truman mm-hmm. Capote for writers like yourself doing true crime? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And by the way, I think uh, Perry uh, Smith and uh, what was the other guy's name? Uh, Dick Hickok. You know, they're another example of that folio. So, um, yeah, well, to me... Uh, you know, in cold blood is, is the gold standard for, you know, modern true crime writing. Um, I remember probably, well, might well have been the first true crime book I ever read. And I, you know, loved the book when it came out. And in fact, I, you know, in my former career as a professor, you know, I, I taught the book in my, in a number of my classes. It's a brilliant book. So yeah, it was very influential. And it also, you know, I'm a great believer in learning from the masters of the form you're working in. So, you know, I definitely, you know, learned things from reading and rereading Capote about, you know, the, his handling a point of view, for example. You know, his, te- you know, when he's switching from one character's perspective to another character's perspective, you know, how he paced the book, you know, how he withheld the revelation of what really happened. Uh, until well into the book and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it was definitely, uh, I would say, the most influential true crime book on me. So what is next for you, Harold? What's rattling around in that brain of yours that's going to turn into your next book? Well, actually, um, I have, I'm very proud of this, um, it's actually coming out uh, this week or maybe the next week. I've done a um, graphic novel. Oh, with wow. About countries greatest comic book artist, a guy named Eric Powell, best known for Compa Called the Goon, um, oh. on uh, Ed Gein. Oh, sure. oh no way, nice. yes. Called, uh, did you know, did you hear what Ed Gein done? That's awesome. Uh, to- oh, wow. Definitely going to have to get a copy of that, uh, Harold. What's the best way to do that for our listeners? Yeah, beautiful book. I actually got my first copy yesterday. Um, 200 pages. The artwork is incredible. Uh, yeah, you can pre-order it on Amazon. That's what I all right. Very cool. Well, Harold, we just wanted to say thank you for doing this interview with us here at Murder Metal Mayhem. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Harold. We do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always, it's always a pleasure, man. Murder! Murder! Man!